has no sting. Sin has no victory. God, that in you, we can be redeemed. God, in you, we have salvation. God, let us celebrate that you are risen every day. That you have trampled over death. That you are alive. And help us come awake. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen. Take a seat. Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through chapter 9, verse 8. It can be found on page 813 and the Bibles under your seats. Once again, Matthew chapter 8, 23 through 9, 8. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and awoke him, and saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side to the country of the uh, Gadarenes. Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass uh, that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the wet waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mike Stanzik. I'm the pastoral resident here at Trinity. Happy to be with you here this morning. I apologize ahead of time. I've been doing my best to overcome this chest cold I've had for a little while. It is not gone, and it may manifest itself in unpleasant ways during the sermon. So, warning to you all. If you'd uh, join me in prayer as we open, that'd be great. 
Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that, that you have accomplished a great victory over sin and death. We rejoice that you are risen. I pray that you would give us a fear before you and worship before you as we come to recognize who it is that you are. Amen. So I'm in the community group that meets at the Patrick's house, with JP and Jess. And for a couple weeks, we've started studying the passages that we're about to do on Sunday. So in other words, this past Monday, we did today's passage and started talking through it. And JP brought up this good point that for a lot of us who are kind of familiar with the Bible or have grown up as Christians, a lot of these stories have been told to us so many times, maybe we ourselves have told them so many times, that it becomes really difficult to to actually put ourselves into the shoes of the folks who, who followed Jesus and, and said the stories kind of become sterilized or, or hollow for us. And so today I, I want to start by, by doing something we've done a, a few other times. We're going to pretend that we don't know anything except what has already been revealed in Matthew. So chapters 1 through the first half of 8, that's all we know. That's all our knowledge of Jesus. And we're going to imagine what it would be like to be one of Jesus' disciples. So let's say you're one of the four fishermen, okay? One of the four fishermen that Jesus calls. And you're a humble guy, humble station in life. It would never occur to you to go and try to find a rabbi because you're not going to become a scribe, right? You're going to be a fisherman and you're, you're content with that. But then suddenly this rabbi shows up and he goes to you. And he calls you, of all people, to join him in this work of bringing the kingdom of God. And right away you realize this dude is unlike any rabbi you have ever met, unlike any other teacher. For one, when he teaches, he teaches with incredible authority, as though he himself has the power to interpret scripture, to expand on it. Like if he were writing an academic paper, all the footnotes he'd just be citing himself, right? He just he speaks with authority, right? And so it would, it would come across impossibly audacious if his teaching wasn't also so life-giving, so profound, so true, true to everything that the scriptures say. And so you're along for, for the ride, right? His words are the words of life. But not only that, this rabbi works miracles. And now maybe you've never seen a miracle in person, but it, it also isn't necessarily unheard of. In all the stories of the prophets, many prophets like Moses or Elisha, Elijah, all, the, all, all these men worked miracles. But that only gets you more excited about this rabbi. He's not just a rabbi. He's a prophet. He comes to do something very, very great. And, and the thing that he comes, that he claims to be doing makes it even better. He claims to be the one who's going to bring the kingdom of God. So he's not only a rabbi or prophet, but this guy might be Messiah. And so you're excited to follow Jesus, to learn from him. He's extraordinary. And yet in so many ways, he's the sort of extraordinary man you have categories for. Rabbi, prophet, Messiah. And then suddenly you arrive at this moment, and Jesus has turned to you and the other disciples and has told you, go over to the other side, meaning the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so you and the other disciples, you get into this boat behind Jesus. And in a couple days' time, you will have crossed the lake from Capernaum to the region of the Gadarenes and then returned. And something is going to take place on that trip 
that is going to challenge every category that you've had for Jesus up until this moment. This is the moment when you're going to realize you're way in over your head. That the man you've been following is anything but just rabbi, prophet, messiah. And will leave you asking, what sort of man is this? So that's the question on the table this morning. What sort of man is this? And to circle in on an answer to that question, we're going to find three clues in the passage as to what sort of man Jesus is. And so the first is that he's the sort of man who shares God's power over nature. If you reread the first few verses with me. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? Sipping my drink real fast. So we open with this little line from Matthew. That kind of bridges from last week into this week. So you'll recall that last week we saw these two would-be disciples. And we encountered the excuses that, that may keep them from following the Lord. And then Matthew gives this, this little line where he says, Jesus goes into the boat and his disciples follow him. They, they go where he goes. It's this cool little literary device that, that Matthew uses to, to show how some folks at least will. Follow Jesus. But even if they follow him, they won't necessarily always know where following Jesus is going to take them, right? So a massive storm hits the boat. They're just completely overtaken. And without going into a ton of detail, the Sea of Galilee is in this spot geographically where storms are intense and they can hit on the drop of a hat with zero warning. It's just this kind of perfect little formulation of different geographic features that make the Sea of Galilee this kind of very unpredictable spot when it comes to weather. And so, like, the storm itself wouldn't have necessarily been a surprise, at least not to the fishermen, but this one that hits the boat is extreme. So picture the scene. Water is swamping the boat. You've got to believe every hand's on deck. The, the four fishermen who, who kind of know what they're doing, they're probably yelling orders, trying to bail water. You've got to think it would have been chaos, especially because eventually all the disciples are terrified, even the fishermen They would have braved a few storms in in their day, and so they would have been the ones to first realize that this is the kind of storm that takes men down. If something doesn't change, they're all going to die. And all the while, Jesus is asleep. He's asleep. And so the disciples run to Jesus, and they wake him. Help, we're we're going to die, right? We're we're perishing. And Jesus' response is insane. He, He says, why are you afraid? Like the F5 caliber storm is why we're afraid, Lord, Please help. That's why we're afraid. But Jesus seems to think, Jesus seems to think that their panic reveals something. Their panic reveals something about how much they understand about him. There are threats more fearsome than storms. Problems greater than swamped boats. He has come to calm a storm greater even than the one they are in. He has come to bring the forgiveness of sins. They still don't realize who they're with. So Jesus rebukes the waves, right? And the the sea becomes still. 
And now, obviously, the disciples had seen miracles performed before and, and rejoiced at them. They, they thought they were really cool. But none of those miracles inspired this response, right? Like, they've seen other healings, but none of those healings make them say what they say here. They respond with, what sort of man is this? What is it about this particular miracle that just blows up all their categories about Jesus as rabbi, prophet, messiah? What is it that's different about calming the sea? So the Jews were people who had been formed around this one major act of salvation, right? That they had been brought together as a people, brought out of the oppression of Egypt by one major act. And you remember what that is, right? The Passover, the Exodus. You got to understand that this event loomed so huge in the mind of the Jews that it influenced all their literature, all their poetry afterward, where in their poetry, images are taken from, from that very story. And in particular... Oftentimes, it's the, the, the image of the sea. Water becomes this, this kind of image of danger. A great stormy sea is this great danger that Yahweh and Yahweh alone can overcome. And that's all from that moment in which Yahweh parts the waters of the Red Sea. And so stormy waters sort of become the sim- symbol. And just a couple examples, Psalm 106. It just recites the events of the Exodus in the way that many of our songs recite the events of the cross. It's talking about the major act of salvation that that Yahweh accomplished. And hear the way it describes the Red Sea moment. Yahweh is said to rebuke the Red Sea. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, which would sound familiar to us. Another example, Psalm 107 is a poem about different sorts of people who have, it's what JP read at the beginning of the, of the service, different sorts of people in all kinds of different situations confronting danger only to cry out to Yahweh in desperation, and he intervenes and redeems them. And one of the examples is of this boat on a stormy sea, and the sailors cry out to Yahweh, and it says, Yahweh made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. These are all images of how Yahweh and Yahweh alone has the capacity to save his people, and it's always through an image of the sea. See, when the disciples are looking at Jesus calming waters, Jesus speaking by his own authority, the text literally says Jesus rebuking the waters. They're looking at a man who is doing what no man should be able to do, They are looking at a man, in fact, who just did something that only one being is said to do in all their literature and poetry. The wind and the the sea obey no one but the one who made them. They obey no one except the one who worked salvation for Israel. Jesus just did something Yahweh does. And I think that brings us to why Jesus calls them men of little faith. That description is only used for disciples. He only says that to folks who have been following him. In some ways, maybe it's because they, of all people, should be the ones who know better. They fear the storm. They run to Jesus for help with the storm, but they haven't yet thought to him, thought to come to him for the ultimate help. They feared that Jesus would let them be dashed to pieces as though that's the worst way Jesus could neglect them. 
Now, were the disciples wrong to go to Jesus? Absolutely not. They were only too easily pleased with Jesus. The storm is a sign that Jesus comes to do what only Yahweh can do, not just calm waters, but to deliver a people. He cares far more than they realize. He cares far more than we often realize. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus came to do something far more difficult than quote-unquote calm the storms of our lives. He has come to perform another exodus. He came to perform an exodus greater even than the first, an exodus out from the oppression of sin and grave, an exodus that would end with the restoration of all things, an exodus that would set apart a new people who obey the Lord and image him even if the danger doesn't relent because they are living in the forgiveness of sins, the knowledge that death has been declawed. But more on that later. For now, Matthew has given us our first clue. Jesus is the sort of man who shares God's power over nature. Next, Jesus is the sort of man who shares God's power over spirits. Verses 28 to 34. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him... They begged him to leave their region. So Jesus and the disciples arrive at the other side safely. And they make their way into the country until they arrive in the region of the Gadarenes, the region of Gadara. And they are walking on a path along some tombs. And they soon realize it's a path that is not frequently traveled. And the reason why is because the, living in these tombs are two demoniacs, or two demon-possessed men, right? And Matthew records that these ones are especially violent to the point that, that folks have sort of just adjusted to a, new, to a new lifestyle, right? They just avoid that road. And you'll notice that the text even has this little detail that, that the herdsmen keep their herds at some distance, from these guys, right? They give them a wide berth. They're dangerous. People fear them. But when Jesus shows up, something wild happens. Jesus doesn't fear the demoniacs. The demons fear him. And they say something pivotal. They say, what have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, there's one thing unsurprising about what they say, and then one thing that's, that's very surprising about what they say. If we are familiar with the Bible story, we know that, that the story of the Bible is about God pushing back the darkness out of his creation and reestablishing his reign as the only rule here, right? So the, these sort of mysterious, antagonistic spiritual beings that we know as demons, their destiny is expulsion. They will be pushed out. Right? They, they, will, they will get justice. Their ultimate destiny is defeat and torment. That's not surprising. Here's what's surprising. Why do they think Jesus is the one that's going to torment them? 
Like later on, Jesus' disciples, they too will encounter demons, and they'll cast them out, just as Jesus did. In fact, this is a, a thing that sounds very, very strange in our kind of like post-enlightenment, very empirical West, but this stuff happens all the time today, all over the world. The disciples of Jesus continue to encounter people oppressed by some mysterious thing that goes away only by the authority of Jesus. This continues to happen. Jesus' disciples will cast out demons, but you never hear about any of them like donning a judge's wig and taking it on themselves to mete out ultimate judgment on these guys, right? That part doesn't happen. <coughs> That's a job better left to the judge of all the earth. Normal men don't claim to have authority over spirits. But these spirits are claiming that Jesus has authority over them. That Jesus himself will be the one to carry out judgment against them, and they fear it. They recognize him. What's going on here? It gets stranger. Jesus shares God's authority over these spirits to the point that they have to beg him to go into the pigs. They have to get his permission to take a different host. They know that with Jesus comes the kingdom. And the kingdom is going to come fully one day when their power will be entirely taken from them. But even now, during this in-between period, they still have to ask permission before they act. So they request to be sent into this herd of pigs. And what follows is grizzly, right? We don't know if this is just the pigs' reaction to what's happening to them or if this is something that the demons are actively kind of trying to do. Matthew doesn't give us that detail. What Matthew wants us to see is that when Jesus says, go, something happens that proves that these two demon-possessed men just got released. Something major happens. This isn't normal pig behavior, right? The demons have brought their destructive influence elsewhere, and what Matthew wants us to see is that that means the men are free. They're no longer captive to this power. The evil has been overcome, and it's come at a cost. We're told that the herdsmen rush off. And they tell everything that happened. They tell that Jesus released these two men, and they tell the cost at which he did it. And it's the village's reaction to that cost that makes the ending of this story so tragic. Yes, two men have been delivered from oppression and evil, but when the villagers come to Jesus, they're not, you know, full of amazement and joy and excitement. They plead with him to leave. It's impractical to have him stay. And sure, it's great when two people are freed, right? But at what point does the cost exceed the reward? What's just two lives when we're talking about the economy? Maybe they would have welcomed him if he was helpful to the market. But as it stands, he poses too much of a risk. Jesus came to bring together a new people of God, and he came to bring them together not just from the comfortable or, or, or the seemingly put together, though all those folks are also invited, but the ones he sought during his time on earth were the oppressed, the forgotten. And he seeks them out at the expense of this village's economy, at the expense of material wealth, 
because, and this is what the villagers, villagers were blind to, he does it because humanity's problem is far more similar to the problem of the demoniacs than it is to the problem of the villagers. You see what I'm saying? At the end of the day, our biggest problem is not economic in nature. It's spiritual. Jesus has come to end the power of Satan. To throw out the unclean spirits. He didn't come to make us wealthy. He came to release us from the power of evil and establish his kingdom. In the economy of the Lord, salvation is more valuable than savings. Inclusion in his kingdom more valuable than income. Grace more valuable than goods. Jesus' list of things that are more important than people is a very short list. But when the villagers ask him to leave, he doesn't force the point. Luke, in, in his gospel, when he records this very same scene, he, he records that Jesus leaves the released man to, to tell about Jesus in the village. He, he leaves a witness behind. But as for he himself, he leaves. But not before giving us our, our second clue to what sort of man he is. Jesus shares God's power over spirits. Thirdly, Jesus shares God's power to forgive. <coughs> Excuse me. Verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your, thought, in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And so Jesus and the disciples, they make it back to Capernaum. No storms this time. Positive. And once back, some, some folks bring a friend of theirs to Jesus, this, this paralyzed friend of theirs. And the scene is so sweet. Like, Matthew mentions that Jesus doesn't just notice the faith of the paralyzed man. He notices their faith. Plural. It's this kind of beautiful image of this whole this small little community around this man all together bringing his problems before the Lord and and trusting in Jesus for help. It's this really kind of beautiful detail that Matthew throws in. And no words on their part are recorded. Matthew never records them asking Jesus for what they think their friend needs. Instead, he only records Jesus granting what he truly needs. Jesus turns to him and tells him that his sins are forgiven, that he's absolved, that God will not hold against him his rebellion, but has made a way for new life for this man. But watching this are some scribes, right? Some folks who are experts on the Hebrew scriptures and the keeping of the law, and they watch what Jesus is doing, his miracles. And yeah, they aren't thrilled by his popularity or the authority that he's claiming, but they haven't yet run into anything that could really give them an excuse to raise a fit. But now Jesus gives them an opportunity 
because Jesus has crossed a major line. Let's take a moment just to think about what Jesus did. He's told this paralytic that his sins are forgiven, but Jesus is not a priest. Jesus has not made a sacrifice on the, on the man's behalf or anything like that. There's nothing concrete to go off of to say, oh yeah, now this dude's sins are forgiven. And it's not just like the scribes have misunderstood. You know, there's no prior argument that took place between Jesus and the paralytic that now is being reconciled and they just don't have the context. Like, no, they, they understand that Jesus has just claimed to give ultimate spiritual forgiveness to this man. And so what they're asking is what kind of right does he have to do that? Because he just claimed a prerogative that only Yahweh has. What right does he have to do this? And so Jesus sort of deduces what they're, what they're thinking, and he calls them on it. He says, verse 4 and 5, he says, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Excuse me. <coughs> In other words, Jesus is saying that it's really easy in some ways to tell someone they're forgiven because the people watching, they have no way of validating that that has taken place, right? They can't do an empirical test to determine, oh, is he actually forgiven or or is he not? And so there's a sense in which some sort of proof would have to be given for the scribes to know that the paralytic is forgiven. And so Jesus is going to give them some hard evidence He turns to the man and he tells him, rise and walk, and the man is healed. Jesus heals the man, and Matthew gives us our third and final clue about what sort of man Jesus is. He's a man who shares God's power to forgive, and the miracle acts as the proof, as the evidence. So where does that leave us? What sort of man is Jesus? Well, he's the sort of man who shares God's power over nature, he shares God's power over spirits, and he shares God's power to forgive. So what sort of man is he? After the healing of the paralytic, the crowds have a really interesting reaction. Remember, this is the crowd in Capernaum. Jesus has worked miracles in Capernaum before. And lots of these folk have likely seen or heard about his work, and obviously they, they rejoiced and everything they understood Jesus' miracles as far as they could, but now Jesus has just situated his miracles in a whole new context. He's claiming that they indicate something that no one has thought before as proof that he gets to do stuff God can do. It's proof that the authority of God has broken into their world through Jesus. I think that's the sense that verse 8 is trying to get at. And what's the reaction of the crowd? Fear. Fear and worship. Now, here's the thing. I don't think a single person in that crowd saw what they saw at that moment and then went to some sort of doctrinal statement about the Trinity in their mind, right? That's not what took place here, okay? Absolutely not. But I think they realized they were standing before a great and awe-inspiring mystery. Though they wouldn't realize or have words for it necessarily until years later, the truth is that at this moment they were not in the presence 
of any sort of human being they'd ever encountered or heard of before. They had ideas about what rabbis are. They had ideas about what prophets are. They even had ideas about what Messiah would be. But this? The reality is that Isaiah's prophecy, quoted at the beginning of Matthew, right? The prophecy about Emmanuel, the guy called God with us. The reality is that Isaiah's prophecy was more true than anyone could have anticipated. The reality is that Jesus is more than a man. He is someone unrecognizable to everyone except the demons who knew him from the ancient times. He is the Son of God. Yahweh visiting his people in a way that no one could have dared to imagine. He is God with us. Which can only mean one thing. The salvation of Israel and the salvation of the world. Trinity, Jesus is God with us. He has arrived to do what only Yahweh can do to rescue, to deliver, and to forgive. The demons should not be the only ones to recognize who we're dealing with. Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of heaven, and by his cross and resurrection, forgiveness is offered to the world. He showed the scribes that if he can heal paralytics, he can forgive sins. And I tell you, if he can forgive sins, he can restore all things. The day is coming when the exodus will be complete. Salvation made total. Every inch of the stormy cosmos calmed. And Jesus announcing, behold, I make all things new. So what does that mean for us in the meantime? Fear the Lord. As the crowds in Capernaum glorify God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and for revealing yourself to us. We thank you, God, that you have made yourself known in the person of Jesus. We ask, Lord, that we would not let who you are be just some sort of intellectual formula that we agree with, but that now here at the end of the service as we sing and as we approach the table, we would do it knowing that God has walked among us. Love you, Jesus. Amen.